first concerning politics, it's not only Ukraine, and I am even more firmly now attached to what I declared as my position. My God, I'm, what is the left thinking? Don't, I'm not referring to some secret knowledge, inner information. Just look what people are saying. Didn't people notice that when Putin announced, you remember on 23rd of February, when Putin announced the invasion, he mentioned critically only one name. Which name? Lenin. He said, Ukraine is Lenin's invention. It's not true, and so on. But Putin declares himself neoconservative, uh, supports all the extreme right-wing party in Slovenia, and I simply don't get this abstract pacifism. Uh, you know also why not? Now comes my next provocation. Pacifism, I think, is not a notion of truth in the sense that it allows you to draw the proper line of division. Uh, the point that I often make, think about Germany uh, occupied France in 1940. Isn't it absolutely true that they wanted peace? Of course, because peace meant they can in peace run the show there, uh, have peace there. Israel sincerely wants peace on the West Bank. It's absolutely clear. This means they can go on with their job. And today, it's not an irony. Russia absolutely wants peace on the, uh, in Ukraine, in their own sense. Okay, just briefly, then I will go to my main point. Second, about Lacan politics and so on and so on. Uh, you know, I'm I'm well aware, neither me nor Alenka nor Mladen try to make out of Lacan some hidden uh, uh, revolutionary or what. Let's be frank, Lacan, from what we can reconstruct as his political stance, uh, was not even a left liberal. I would say he was some kind of a slightly cynical, moderate conservative. From what we know, he voted for uh, uh, De Gaulle uh, when his uh, daughter uh, 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 supported uh, against France the Algerian uprising late 50s, in late 50s, early 60s. Uh, Lacan was, and wanted to join the Communist Party, Lacan was stopped at it, and so on, and so on. But so that I don't lose time here, more important, uh, the beginning of my answer to you, if I were to have more time, would have been to distinguish between suicide and subjective uh, destitution. Subjective destitution for me is not, uh, uh, is not suicide. Subjective destitution is a certain shift in subjectivity and Alenka and Mladen know more about this, have written about this, for example, you know which is, I think, a really happy person when he is dying. There is no death drive. He went through subjective destitution. Oedipus in Oedipus at Colonus. He reconstructed his desire. He knows what he wants to screw up as much as possible to have his city tab and so on and so on. So here things are much more complex. But let's not lose time. 
as far as I'm concerned, we can go on. Uh, uh, after with the debate, I would like just to do something which will appear maybe even more problematic to you, because the key is that this big metaphysical topic, you know, I'm opposed to it like crazy. I agree this, you know, some fatal negativity, want to die, to erase yourself, all that, all that. For me, in every strong emancipatory movement, when you are precisely politically most engaged, something like this happens. And it's not only Ukraine now. I got, I'm proud to say, if you are looking for my political engagements, I was actively involved in the, uh, I'm not saying I was crucial there, in the, the miracle, the axis of good, not evil, I call them, Chile, Bolivia, Colombia where a radically leftist president was elected. With, I was totally engaged in my broken Spanish. I even recorded uh, 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 some podcasts to support. But let's skip this. Let's go into what I want to say, because as you will see, it's not that I celebrate suicide. My idea is precisely let's not go to the end. What do I mean by this? Peace now comes some kind of philosophy, a little bit of patience. Hegel's basic concepts are, as a rule, misunderstood in order to fit the predominant interpretation of his work. Since today's Hegelian liberalism, from Pippin uh, 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 to others, focuses on mutual recognition, this notion is I think, in all liberal readings, purified of its darker aspect. Who of the poets of reconciliation mentions Hegel's advocacy of death penalty? What's Hegel's point? Through the act of legal execution, the guilty subject is reconciled with the substantial ethical order and in this sense forgiven. His debt is paid the wound of his crime is healed, which is why, I like this Hegel's formulation, let's see if you swallow this, which is why that penalty for Hegel is the subject's right, the criminal's right. Through it, the subject is recognized as a free agent. Hegel uses the term recognition here, and all those who see in recognition, Hegel's key concept, should gather the, the strength to accept it here also. The murderer is recognized as a free autonomous person when he or she is sentenced to death. And uh, for Hegel, uh, taking into account all the social circumstances which made him a murderer deprives him of his freedom, precisely. So I think uh, this uh, victimization in the sense of proclaiming somebody the victim of circumstances is very ambiguous. Many black friends of mine are very sensitive to this. When say, when we commit a crime, uh, we are victims of circumstances. When a white wealthy guy commits a crime, he should be punished. What does it mean that we are just uh, manipulated by social circumstances? Let me go on. Another concept, which is as a rule misunderstood, is the negation of negation. This concept is usually uh, 
conceived as some kind of a self-sublating negation, return to new, higher positivity, and so on. Like, we go to the anti-negativity and then things magically turn uh, around. What disappears in this reading is, as this was pointed out by the other two members of my Lacanian gang, Alenka and Mladen Dolar, the negation of negation as a failure of negation. Self-negation is by no means strange to Hegel. Let me just give you one example. In one of the most famous passages in his phenomenology, Dialectic of Master and Servant, Hegel imagines, as we all know, the confrontation of two self-consciousnesses engaged in the struggle for life and death. Each side is ready to go to the end in risking its life. But if they both persist to the end, there is no winner. One dies, the other survives, but without another to recognize it. So the whole history of freedom and recognition, in short, the whole history as such, the whole of human culture, can take place only with an only original compromise. In the eye-to-eye, Confrontation, one side, the future servant, blinks, averts its gaze, is not ready to go to the end. Here we can again see how Hegel is not a thinker pushing things to the end, to their most radical potential. Sometimes compromise, not going to the end, is crucial. But uh, here I take over again an idea developed elsewhere by Alenka and Mladen. But I find much more interesting that this idea of, you know, the end-suicide as a vortex of some final negativity, we shouldn't go so far. The opposite case, when a subject goes to the end, tries to commit suicide, and it fails. This is what interests me. The masterpiece of the failed suicidal negation is, of course, I love her, Edith Wharton. Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome. You all know it, I hope, a short novel which takes place against the backdrop of the cold, gray bleakness of a New England winter. The narrator gradually learns the whole story reaching decades into the past. Ethan Frome, an isolated farmer, is trying to escape, to scrap out a meager living while also tending to his frigid, demanding wife, Gina. A ray of hope enters Ethan's life of despair when, 24 years ago, his wife's cousin, Matty, arrives to help them. His life is transformed as he falls in love with Matty, who returns love. Gina suspects this and orders Matty to leave. Since Ethan lacks money to escape with Matty, he takes her to the train station. They stop up at a hill upon which they had once planned to go sledding and decide to sled together as a way of delaying their sad parting. After the first run, Matty suggests a suicide pact. They go down again and steer the sled directly into a tree so they will never be parted so they will spend their last moments together. Ethan agrees, 
they get on the sled, clutching each other, they crash headlong, uh, headlong and at high speed into uh, the elm tree. Ethan regains, regains consciousness after the accident, and but Matty lies beside him, keeping in pain like a small wounded animal, while Ethan is left with a permanent limb. The epilogue returns to the present while visiting throne in his house, the narrator hears a complaining female voice. And it is easy to assume that belongs to this voice to the never happy Zina. But it emerges that it is Matty who now lives with the thrones due to having been paralyzed in the accident. Her misery over her plight and dependence has embittered her and the roles are now reversed. Zina is forced to care for her as well as for Ethan. She has now found the strength uh, to be the caregiver rather than being the invalid. So in an agonizing irony, the love couple of Ethan and Matty have gotten what their wish had to stay together, but in mutual unhappiness and discontent with Zina as a constant presence between the two of them. It's the ultimate case of what Mladen Dolar uh, 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 proposed as a formula of being as a failed non, as a failed non-being. And I don't have time to develop this now because that's with time. I just want to say that this is for me rather the standard situation of our, what Freud called, ordinary unhappiness. We are survivors of our failure to go to the end. But now my final point. What if a suicide does not fail? Can we imagine suicide as an emancipatory political act? The first associate are here, of course, public suicide as a protest against foreign occupation. I remember from my youth, Vietnam, Poland in 1980s, and so on. In the last years, however, and this is my final example, a suicide proposal aroused a wide debate in South Africa. Derek Hook reports how in March, 2016, Ter Blanche Delport, a young white academic, sparked outrage at a Johannesburg conference when he called on white people in South Africa to commit suicide as an ethical act. Here are Delport's own words. Sorry for this longer quote. The reality in South Africa is that most of White people spend their whole lives only engaging black people in subservient positions, cleaners, gardeners, and so on. My question is then, how can a person not be a racist if that's the way they live their lives? The only way then for white people to become part of Africa is not to exist as white people anymore. If the goal is to dismantle white supremacy, and white supremacy is white culture, and vice versa, then the goal has to be to dismantle white culture and ultimately white people themselves. The total integration into Africa by white people will also automatically mean 
the death of white people as white as a co- uh, uh, white as a concept would not exist anymore. End of quote. How more concretely are we to imagine this suicide of South African rights? Donald Moss proposed a simple but for me problematic solution. The racist whiteness is a parasitic formation which parasitizes on whites themselves. Again, a quote. Whiteness is a condition one first acquires and then one has a malignant parasitic-like condition to which white people have a particular susceptibility. The condition is foundational, generating characteristic ways of being in one's body, in one's mind, and in one's world. Parasitic whiteness renders its host's appetite voracious, insatiable, and perverse. These deformed appetites particularly target non-white people. Once established, these appetites are nearly impossible to eliminate. End of quote. So, to get rid of their racist sons, the whites have to get rid of their parasitic whiteness, which is not part of their substantial nature, but just parasitizes on them. Which means that in getting rid of their racism, they do not lose the substance of their being. They even regain it, obliterating its distortion. I reject this. It's way too optimistic, as if we can simply distinguish in white people their true substantial whiteness, which is not in itself racist and this parasitic uh, 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 disfiguration. I prefer to this easy way out, Hook, Derek Hook's comment, directly inspired by Lacanian theories. Another quote, don't be afraid, the last one. Delport's rhetorical and deliberately provocative suggestion is perhaps not as counterintuitive or crazy as it at first sounds. Arguably, it is the gesture of giving up what one is. The shedding of narcissistic investments and symbolic and phantasmatic identities. That proves the necessary first step to becoming what one is not, but might become. This is the transformative potential of anxiety that clinicians work so hard to facilitate. And that I think can also be discerned, however fleetingly, in the instances of white anxiety. The potential potentially uh, the potentiality that a new and hitherto unthinkable form of identification is being unconsciously processed, end of quote. Now, what I nonetheless uh, find problematic in these lines is the optimist term. Suicide does not mean the actual collective self-killing of the South African whites. It means a symbolic erasure of their identity, which already points towards new forms of identity. I find it, now comes my provocation, trigger warning, as they say, I find it much more productive to establish a link between the idea of the white's collective suicide and the idea of so-called Afro-pessimism. Recall Fanon's claim that, quote, the Negro is a zone of non-being, an extraordinarily sterile and arid region, an utterly declining Declivity. 
Is the experience that grounds today Afro, today's Afro-pessimism not a similar one? Does the existence of Afro-pessimists, that black subordination is much more radical than that of other underprivileged groups, Asians, LGBT+, plus, and so on? That is to say that blacks should not be put into the series with other forms of colonization, not grounded in the act of assuming that one belongs to such a zone of non-being. That's why, do you remember, I like to make a step at great authorities. We take as the symbol of struggle against colonialism, Gandhi. Ah, ah, ah. I went to check it up. You know that when Gandhi was fighting uh, white supremacy in South Africa, my friends in India gave me all the quotes. He was explicitly not fighting for black rights. He just, uh, in early apartheid, there were three groups, white on the top, Indians in the middle, and blacks on the bottom. And he explicitly just wanted Indians, Indians in India, not Native Americans, to join, to be recognized as the same as the whites. So what if we turn Delport's suggestion, now comes my real provocation, uh, radical as it may appear around, and propose that it is the blacks in the South Africa who should commit a collective symbolic suicide to shed their social symbolic identity, which is profoundly marked by white domination and resistance to it, and which contains its own fantasies and even narcissistic investments of victimization. I was told by my black friends that in the United States, blacks are right in using the term victim to insult their black opponents. One can thus repeat exactly the same words. The blacks need to perform the gesture of giving up what one is, shedding of narcissistic investments, symbolic phantasmatic identities, that proves a necessary first step towards becoming what one is not but might become. Consequently, I see Afro-pessimism not just as a recognition of dismal social reality, but also and above all as something that announces the potentiality that a new form of identification is being unconsciously processed. To put it brutally, let's imagine that in one way or another, all the whites would disappear from South Africa. The ANC, African National Congress, inefficiency and corruption would remain, and the poor black majority would find itself even more strongly dislocated, lacking the designated cause of its poverty. To revolutionize a system is never equal to just eliminating one of its parts. In the same way that the disappearance of Zeus as the disturbing element never restored social harmony. Now you will say, I'm dreaming. Ah, I'm not. Was Malcolm X not following exactly this insight when he adopted X as his family name? The point of choosing X and thereby signaling that the slave traders who brought the enslaved Africans from their homeland brutally deprived them of their 
family and ethnic roots of their entire cultural life world was not to mobilize the blacks to fight for the return to some primordial African roots, but precisely to seize the opening provided by X, an unknown new lack of identity engendered by the very process of slavery, which made the African roots forever lost. The idea is that this X, which deprives the blacks of their particular tradition, offers a unique chance to reinvent themselves, to form a new identity much more universal than white people's professed universality. So Malcolm X proposed for blacks themselves to bring to the end their deracination with a gesture of symbolic suicide. The passage through zero point in order to free the space for a new identity. Such a gesture would render the white domination simply pointless, a solipsist dream, a game missing a partner with whom it can only be played. Was this not the reason why Malcolm X was treated as an enemy by Muslim nation, by black uh, nationalist. Parakan declared him worthy of death. A week before his assassination, his home in Queens was firebombed, and so on and so on. So one cannot but note the cruel irony of the fact that, although, as is well known, Malcolm X found this new identity in the universalism of Islam, he was, in all probability, killed on the order of the organization called the Nation of Islam, an organization which used Islam to serve its limited ethnic identity. Uh, here is a typical, horrifying for me, quote from Farrakhan, attacking Malcolm X. Quote, was Malcolm your traitor of or ours? And if we dealt with him like a nation deals with the traitor, what the hell business is it of yours? You just shut your mouth and stay out of it, because in the future we're going to become a nation. And the nation got to be able to deal with traitors and cutthroats and turncoats. The white man deals with his traitor, blah, blah. The Jews deal with theirs. End of quote. In short, Malcolm was killed precisely because he blurred the clear line that separated ours from yours. He was killed to prevent the blacks to commit the symbolic suicide that would open up the path to not only their emancipation. And even today, we continue to live in the shadow of this failed suicide, which keeps the blacks in their subordinate position. That's it. Thanks very much. I hope I was not too long. Thank you very much, Slavoj, um, for this intervention. Um, I personally, uh, <laughs> you 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 surprised us, and um, I'm I'm going to invite uh, Todd, Duane, Mari to think of uh, a response to this uh, very interesting uh, question. Because I think Mari, perhaps it would be interesting for you if you wanted to jump in. Um, because the 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 direction of Slavoj's intervention, in a way, flipped your assumption of of this um, tragic Marquis de Sade 
Lacan of the ethics uh, version of the suicide. That's not what I just heard, which was an interesting uh, sorry, kind of sorry. reversal. Can I add Go something? Ahead. It's important. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify this, I was always truly opposed to this poetry of the tragedy. My old motive, no, probably some to some of you, is that to simplify to the utmost. When things get really horrible, tragedy no longer works. It has to be comedy. Tragedy works when the victim maintains a minimum of dignity. That, and you, if you conceive Auschwitz, Holocaust, even Soviet Gulag, as a tragedy, you miss the true horror of the situation there. That's why all the best movies, a couple of them, on Holocaust, did you notice, are comedies, are comedies. Okay, I will not go into it how, where uh, La Vita e Bella misses its final point precisely because it becomes, uh, yes, seven beauties, thanks very much. Pasqualino e sette bellezze. This is the ultimate movie, I think, on, on Auschwitz. You know what? Uh, comedy is not this stupid comedy that you love. Comedy means things are so horrible that it's a fake to adopt the position of the position of tragedy. So this is why, just another Lacanian dogmatic explanation, I also oppose this focus of Lacan as a thinker of tragic leg, whatever we have in our hands, we always miss the ultimate object of desire. No, as I insist again and again, for Lacan, the other aspect of this leg is always an excess. You encounter sexuality not as a lack, but as an excess. The other wants something for you. It's impenetrable. What does the other want? It's an obscene excess. Uh, the point of jouissance is not what people usually claim. Oh, you can do this, that, but no matter how perverse you are in your sex life, you never reach that, the full incestuous enjoyment. Lacan's point is more the opposite one. No matter how much you try to get rid of enjoyment, enjoyment will persist because it simply displays onto the very ritual's act of uh, getting rid of enjoyment. Here I agree with Judith Butler, who in her, I think, uh, best uh, uh, book, something about culture, I forgot, uh, uh, wrote that... Uh, the repression of desire always turns into desire of repression and belief for repression. And believe me, I know this because this is the basic obsessional neurotic mechanism. And if anything, I am that <laughs> obsessional neurotic. Namely, how you want to escape some too traumatic idea of jouissance, but then you elevate into object of enjoyment, these very rituals of how to escape it. No, desire, uh, enjoyment is not a lack. Enjoyment is kind of a stain, an excess that you never can get rid of. Sorry for interrupting you. Uh, so, uh, wait, um, okay. Ah, hi. It's nice that I get you again, yeah. <laughs> well, can I reformulate now my question for you? You know what is to cut it short so that you don't drop 
drop dead of tiredness there. I, what I'm trying to do is simply to show also with my practice that this uh, dimension, this oscillation between, and I agree with you, I hate them, you know, this fatal fascination, no, whatever we do in this world is limited, just pragmatic, empirical, suicidal disappearance is the only true act. I will go to the end here. I think Lacan himself, now I'm addressing to the few among you who are a little bit more dogmatically educated in Lacan. That's how I read Lacan's seminar, which comes after the ethics, where Lacan gives his wonderful reading of Claudel's Cofontaine trilogy. Uh, I think that Lacan's reading of Antigone is still marked by this. Uh, it's a certain Lacanian ontology, which is now propagated by Jacqueline Miller, which is this one. We can be truly authentic, encounter the zero point of death drive, the abyss of the thing, only in momentary elements of contacting the real. <laughs> but we cannot persist in this state. So we have to return to normality, but, and Miller uses this term, with a cynical distance, like play the game, but be aware that don't take the game too seriously, that it's not the truth. I'm totally opposed to it. And I think here, Lacan's uh, Alenka, do you know, is it desire, desire and its interpretation? Which is the seminar that comes after ethics? No, it's the transference. For me, I deserve gulag for this deviation, sorry. But there it's absolutely a self-critique of Lacan of his one-sided reading of ethics. Because his reading of Antigone there, again, can still be read in this way. We confront some ultimate zero point, but it's too dramatic to persist there, so let's return cynically to our daily life. I'm sorry for having interrupted you, Mari. Go on. No, thank you so much. My point is, sorry, I break My point is precisely that that what I call subjective destitution or suicide is something not kind of a mystical, I, I awoke sweating in the middle of the night and blah, blah, and then, oh, let's go back to daily life. No, it's a stance which should permit, sustain precisely our daily political struggle. Here I will quote my preferred theologist, Gilbert Keith Testerton, who uses this wonderful example, that's for me subjectiveness of a soldier who fights, doesn't care if he dies. But at the same time, it doesn't mean I want to be killed. He is very, you know, you are fearless, not afraid to die, but this doesn't mean you are an idiot who just runs into the guns. You are still very cunning, act rationally. That's what interests me. I'm very sorry now, even if I have to kill myself, I will shut up, please. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, actually, I, I have to say that I was not surprised to hear this talk. And I think it's because I heard uh, a talk a few years ago by you um, uh, in which you 
kind of indicated that the LGBTQ plus uh, would be the site of um, some sort of a privileged site for um, political universalism or something like that. And so uh, I don't want to contest anything that you said. I really just have a question. But why not contest it? F three point Q contest it. No, no, because I, I, I want to. I want to ask a question so that I I, I can be sure that I understood you correctly, uh, which is. Um, are you saying that Afro-pessimism, in your view, in your current view, is uh, a privileged side of a more genuine universalism than what yes. has been? Okay. As naive as that, yeah. Okay. And then how do you link that to your other point about the collective black suicide in South Africa? That link got lost for me. It, I'm just asking but, for but, clarification. But, but uh, collective suicide means... Just what, again, I can only give you the example of Malcolm X. The, don't, uh, this is, okay, I will just give you the political background. I'm terrified of those black politicians, theorists, who think the situation in the terms of resisting white universalism. No, we have our own authentic tradition. Let's return to it and so on and so on. My God, uh, my point is that uh, white colonization never wanted to make the colonized other the same as us. Here, I respectfully disagree with Homi Baba, who spoke about mimicry and so on and so on. My big lesson here is India. You know that the first thing that the British did in the mid of 19th century was to printing old, uh, uh, old, uh, old uh, Veda books and so on. They noticed that if Indians keep their own traditional identity, it will be much easier to keep them in subordinate position and, uh, and uh, exploit them. And this came with a wonderful hypocrisy that uh, every Indian colonizer, uh, sorry, uh, 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 British colonizer of India, they were always ready to, to uh, accept, my God, I read some brutal colonizer's memoirs where he said, my God, I've never seen such a spiritual depth as in an ordinary, happy, literal Indian farmer. Who are we? Nothing, pure Western uh, manipulators, and so on and so on and so on. This is how racism works today. This is why the friends that I have among Native Americans, the friends who hate these terms, by the way, is precisely, one told me a wonderful story, I will not read my own stories, when he was visited in some uh, reservation by a black guy living in a nice villa in uh, LA, of course, who said, uh, my God, you live such an authentic life. I would like it. And then my Native American friend told him, wonderful, let's exchange our places. You come to live in my dirty hat, allow me to go and you can have all the authenticity here. So I, uh, you see my point. I believe in universality, not abstract universality of we are simply all the same. But I believe in this, uh, how should I put it, multiculturalism of mixing identities in what sense it always sorry my own story it always fascinated me to see how a certain work of art 
when it's transposed into another culture, you, you observe, you become aware in this work of art of something that was not there in the original. I think foreigners can understand us as the rule better than me understand here. My usual example, you can download it on Pirate Bay. The best version of Hamlet is for me, Akira Kurosawa from 62, set in modern Japan, with a wonderful title, Only Bad People Sleep Good, you know, which is totally true. They don't have conscience and so on. You see, the, this is why my last story, sorry if you know it since uh, Salman Rushdie was in the news recently. I remember being at a round table with him where uh, somebody criticized him for... Uh, for betraying his Indian roots and so on. And he gave a wonderful answer. He said, not true. My biggest inspiration are two great Indian writers, Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. <laughs> and he went on how all this topic, Dick, uh, Austen's topic of impoverished upper class trying to marry their daughters, he said, this is Bombay today, the upper middle class, and so on, and so on. You see, this is for me what Hegel would have called concrete universality, not this abstract, we are all humans and so on, but this unique mixture of particular identities where something new emerges. Sorry, again. Thank you so much. Well, I, I interrupted you four or five times. It's obviously true what people say that no matter how I try to flatter feminists, I'm really a male chauvinist pig and I don't know <laughs> what to do. Thank you. I think I can forgive you for that. Thank you. Uh, so nice. Thanks very much. Yeah. But sorry, Mari, my last question to you, but admit something else that this, uh, I hate it. I, I'm for death penalty. You know, this type of apparently anti-male chauvinist men who celebrate women, but in this fake patronizing way, you know, like we men are too much caught into manipulating nature, domination. You women are much more into organic uh, collaboration with me. I, I, this is death penalty for me, you know. Would you for, agree me too, with my... for me too, I'm going to interrupt you now. Okay, because that's death penalty for me too. I hate that kind of thinking. The whole men are different than women. I, can, I can't stand it. So, no. Thanks. Sorry, now I'll be silent then. Hey, Slavoj. Yes, Carol. Um, yeah. You. Fuck yeah. so, you. <laughs> I don't want to talk with you. You are. Uh, okay. so, uh, he's my best friend, so I want to begin with an insult. You know, you <laughs> sent me your last book. Did I send it to you? Yeah. A year, two ago. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? The paper was so rough that they couldn't even use it as a toilet paper. <laughs> okay, now ask your stupid question. <laughs> okay. I just, it's really short. It's just... What is the what is this what is the collective subjective destitution look like the day after? So I just want to like bring together a couple of your ideas, and I wonder if you could talk about that. A very good question, because uh, here also, as people who know my work know, I am tired of this. Let's call it ecstatic leftism. You know, we have a month or two of state of emergency, millions on the street and so on. But then things return to normal and they may be even worse than the day before. 
But then this upper-class leftist withdraw to their academic work and write very complex books. Why? Because of the betrayal and counter-revolution. The revolution had to go wrong and so on and so on. No, I, I think when I speak about subjective destitution, first, I don't mean a kind of a general obliteration of subjectivity. What I call it, okay, now, Graham, you are there. You know, when you attack, attack, okay, stupid term, I know. When you, when you, in your wonderful descriptions, and I quote them in my new book, when you describe this, how should I call it? I don't know the proper term. This, uh, this equalization of what are in traditional ontology different level humans interacting with un, no different levels minerals nature they all interact you know i think maybe here is the disagreement i find this stands wonderful but i think it involves a subject not an active subject in the sense of false Kantian sense uh, of uh, dominating it all, constituting it, but the subject as the very space of universality, the position from which, maybe here, Graham, we disagree, the position from which you can adopt this wonderful sense. I remember here, how was she called, my God, the one, I'm sorry, this is my senility, not anti-feminism, a lady who wrote a wonderful book on this uh, ecology and propose this metaphor of a place where uh, uh, where things rot and how you know in all this decay where technology in decay Change mixed back. with nature new forms of interactive life emerge and Jane so Bennett? on and so Jane sorry Jane, Jane Bennett? Bennett yeah 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 I'm not saying I agree totally with her but this well, I only claim, maybe we disagree here, that this position still implies what I would have called subject, not as an active agent, but as a very space from which you can perceive all this. I doubt that an animal or another being caught into its particular environment can can uh, perceive this. But back to your point, uh, uh, I... Agree with your point, uh, Todd. Absolutely. I am for revolution the day after. When the, when, uh, like, uh, what interests me more and more is, and here, so that you will not say again that I'm dreaming. Would you agree, Todd? If you agree, I will read your next books. I will not use it in the above mentioned way. Uh, uh, like, uh, here, that's why I, not as an opportunism, but with full conviction supported these Latino guys. Uh, first, Morales. Morales was a little bit of a jerk, but behind him there were uh, there were Linera and Lucio Arce. They were excellent socialist technocrats. They they didn't screw up capitalism. They controlled it in a very reasonable way. Capital didn't uh, Run away. They, they, they were not uh, Chavez and Cuba, who I think genuinely screwed it up. No, I, I don't buy this game. I think I that's saw, right. And yeah. again, I, I, the same looks in Chile, right. I hope in Colombia, 
Here we have the left, which is not the left of, oh, we had one million people on the street and then misery returns and then you uh, blame uh, uh, capitalism or whatever, you know. A, a, a left which is aware of the, is not simply a pragmatic left. They are aware of how the predicament we are in, global warming, war, and so on, will can be met only through more radical changes, but at the same time, they are aware that if you proceed too fast in the wrong way with this change, you screw it up even more. That's, they, they would be, if you ask me, a model for me. Yeah. I agree with that. I think you're right. I agree. Yeah. Hmm. Let's go to Kiara quickly. We have... How are you doing on time? I think five, ten minutes. It's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I owe All you. All right. This. So, so this go is on, a bit. Of a, it's a bit of a, a money or your life situation. But I'm sorry, Sav. I you're the idiot. Either you're Maybe. the idiot or or the transphobe because you keep blurting this stuff out that's so hard to justify. And uh, it's like where am I? I have to keep quiet about sort of being into your work. It's like a guilty pleasure these days because you say so much that I just don't think it takes into account the field in which you're you're engaging and and how people are going to respond to it because they're going to read it as transphobic. And I, and I and maybe you're not. Maybe you're just an idiot. But uh, I I do think. Okay, there but is can you explain to me this transphobic element? Where do you, you see? To, well, you have to watch my talk yesterday. There's this. Oh, I mean, like the, the compar- comparing cross-dressing with blacking up your face. You know, that's that's uh, you know going to be offensive to a lot of people, including me. Uh, I, I just think I just think it's it's clumsy at best. But there's also plenty of repetition. There's lots of examples where you you seem to single out trans people, uh, uh, but not, for instance, tra- uh, cis women. Or, 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 for example, just keep coming back to trans women to make your points where it's completely unnecessary, as it was with the comment about sort of blacking up your face in your latest book. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think you need to take take into account the, the context in which you're saying these things. And, and, and you shoot yourself in your foot, and it makes it very difficult then to say, I'm a Zizekian, or I love Zizek. And I say, well, how do you love Zizek? You're, you're a trans woman. You know, I okay. think that, uh, yeah. no, I appreciate your point, but let me make first let me clarify something. Nobody will like it. I find very problematic this idea of context not being offensive. I want to be offensive because context itself can be wrong. In the sense of what is the context today? The context is the predominant ideology. And we have to be offensive here, otherwise we are immediately uh, appropri- immediately reappropriated. Second thing, uh, what you said about this uh, transphobia. Listen, my position is very clear, and as you pointed out, and I agree here, re- even repeated repetitively. Why? Because uh, I follow Lacan here. No, 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 not that this justifies me. What I like in Lacan is that he has a couple of examples, stories, literary motives, and he returns to them again and again. But you follow him closely, he 
changes uh, the reading. But one point is basic. So here I would like to see very short transphobia. My basic point is that sexual difference is not, as you know, is not binary in the sense of uh, male identity opposed to feminine identity. And there I go into this Lacanian Hegelian paradox that uh, 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 that uh, trans people stand for difference as such in opposition to 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 masculine, feminine, and so on. That trans is precisely not. I, what I oppose is this simplified idea that there is an original fluidity of trans and then bad uh, patriarchy imposes binary opposition. I, I think that uh, sexual difference, not in the sense of established identities, but in the sense of the deadlock that marks sexuality is at its purest embodied in trans people. They, and that's why, para, you know, uh, for me as a Lacanian Hegelian, antagonism always involves three points, never two. That's why, as Naden Dolar used this example ago, years ago from Kierkegaard, where Kierkegaard quotes a wonderful, uh, some uh, some Danish uh, comic writer who said all people can be classified into uh, officers, housemates, and chimney sweepers. You know, like where is the chimney sweeper if the first two stand? And so again, my idea is that we don't have just identities and their opposition. We have also uh, a privileged element which gives body to identity itself. And here I read you, I want to ask you, Chiara, a question. Uh, you, on the one hand, you go into this trans, blah, blah, I agree. But then somehow you claim that feminine identity is negativity as such and so on. But, you know, many some trans feminists that I know would say, no, no, no. Trans means also you renounce feminine identity. Where, where do you stand here? Why do you still privileged fem, privilege feminine? I do, but why you? I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's a complex uh, answer that I would give and it hasn't time. But, I mean, you can just take the example of, you know, the, the diversity of clothes that a, a, a woman can wear against the uh, very limited range of options of a man. And, that, and or, or we have notions such as gender neutral clothing. It's never dresses. It's I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and so there is clothing. Where I, do I think this is, here? this is just symptomatic of, uh, of a deeper problem that people have with femininity. Feminine expressions, the things that we associate, uh, I know, sort of in gendered respects uh, to femininity, such as caring for others, tenderness, kindness, all these issues that men have with their masculinity, pressures to man up. It comes back to the, if you like, the feminist Eric who says, uh, you know, you're not man enough. Uh, you know, women that can be just as bad as men in goading men into uh, being the, the better patriarch. And, and then, but then there's also the uh, feminine sexuality dimension, which I, I don't want to spend up, spend too much time. Yeah. I know there is much time. Uh, maybe watch my talk yesterday, but it's going to be deeply offensive or maybe not. Maybe you'll 
appreciate the intervention. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, plenty to talk about. Maybe no, but, but still, the problem I found again, I again is sometimes maybe it's my superficial reading. Sometimes you want to be radically trans, but sometimes you speak about femininity undermining patriarchy. So are you claiming, and I, at a certain level, I would be able to accept this, that there is a trans element in, okay, we should demystify this notion, but in femininity as such, that femininity is not self-identical in the same way that masculinity is. It's not masculine identity and feminine identity. Yeah. And this is, I think, exactly, you may disagree, what Lacan means by la femme n'existe pas. Yeah. Exactly. That with men, you have... Uh, that's why I claimed, now that may be a problematic point for you, that Descartes is at the origin of <laughs> good, because do you know his immense influence among women of his time, Descartes? They liked him because they got it. As one of his, okay, rich noble woman admirers put it, Cogito uh, doesn't have a sex, which meant is not masculine. And I, 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 I love this idea. But okay, sorry, we cannot go on. Yes, I will I, definitely look. We, we put it in a lot of agreement, but there, there, there's this minor, of course, disagreement that can raise many issues. Uh, but, I, I um, agree, and I, I love how you say this. This is how we civilize people, and I'm not ironic, how we politely say that we don't agree with each other. Like, we practically agree. There is just maybe some minor point you know, where where I sent you to Gulag or you sent me to Gulag, and I love this. <laughs> Right, thank you. Another time. Thanks. Very, very interesting. I wanted to reference at least one comment from the audience, Please? which is Andrew. Andrew said something very interesting, which is, are you aware that the title of Huey Newton's uh, autobiography was called Revolutionary Suicide? He's one of the founders of the Black Panthers. No, but you know, I admire, oh my God, I forgot this comment. You know why I especially admire Huey Newton? Mm -hmm. You know about his link with, uh, who was that famous leftist American, Erickson, one of the great psychoanalysts? Eric Erickson. Yeah, and you yeah. know that Huey Newton has a, a book of dialogues with him. Erickson was totally on his side. Huey Newton is an ink incredibly important figure. He yeah. is, and I say this only about a few people, you know, yeah. there are geniuses, this, that, but they are idiots. And there are only a few people who are not complete idiots. <laughs> and one of them is Huey Newton. My God, uh, uh, uh. you know what I will do now? My usual cheating. I will find this book. No? Yeah, 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 thanks. Yeah, in search of common ground, yes. Uh, thanks. I will find this book, and then you know how we academics cheat. I will quote it, and then I will add a small footnote, claiming uh, after I finish this text, I noticed that my friend Daniel Tat also knew this. You know, like when you cheat from the when you steal from the other, you admit it, but as a contingent afterwards coincidence. Now, that's basic academic cheating. No? <laughs>
Okay. Um, any any other uh, anyone wish to jump in? I think we we have Slavoj with a bit of energy. I'm happy to welcome any other panelists. Uh, um, Matthew Duane is Duane with us? Duane yes, is there. I think it's right. I mean, um, so I can jump in if uh, if anyone. Mark, else. sure, yeah. briefly jump um, in. Okay. Hi, Zizek. Um, uh, I've been reading a new book, and I was fascinated in. Um, you know, we're talking about going to the end. You you referenced Meister Eckhart uh, go descending into hell. Yeah, uh, and I was just really fascinated. And, uh, you know, in terms of you say that what's it called? Um, it's his content. You say that um, it's his your contention that one should replace God here with Christ. One cannot go. Without God in heaven, because God is heaven. And the only way God can be in hell is in the figure of Christ. The reason we have to replace God with Christ is thus simply that it is the only way to make sense of Meister Eckhart's proposition, meaningful in the Christian sense. I just thought could, if you could just mention something like because it's, it's fascinating and it's great. I'm taking it away back to other theologians. <laughs> you know to whom I refer here? I found only now a wonderful passage in uh, Lacan, I forgot in which seminar, where he says that desire as such is hell. And the very idea of heaven is, uh, how do you call it, in psychoanalytic sense, the defense against uh, desire, you know. So I, but also my idea, <clears throat> I developed this a couple of times in my books, I don't want to repeat myself too much. My idea is that, uh, Heaven must be extremely boring. That's why you notice in my book, I quote a song, I exaggerate there, they're not to be taken so seriously, maybe, of Rammstein, ein Engel, an angel, which is a beautiful vision of hanging on the edge of heaven from the clouds, angels, and wanting to descend to earth, but they cannot, they are desperate up there, and they plead to God, no, I want to go down to, to the earth, and so on, you know. And I think that uh, that's my atheist reading of Christianity. Everything happens here. The death of Christ is also the death of the God beyond, and Holy Spirit is, I know, provocative again, the original form of the Communist Party. It's just the collective spirit of us fighting here. No? Thanks very much for this, because I like that part, because I'm very specific here. Some people will again uh, 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 maybe uh, proclaim me, I don't know, Eurocentrist, I don't care, <laughs> that uh, it's, I know what why I mentioned Meister Eckhart, because I think that Nicolaus de Cusa, Cusanus, whom many New Age like, is still too abstract, this divinity, one with God, and so on. It's Meister Eckhart, and then Jacob, Jacob Beme, Jacob Beme, and then yeah. some parts of Selling, where you have this much more uh, 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 radical theosophy, whatever you call it. And as for Buddhism, I am not convinced I know that I have some friends who are Tibetans but don't live in Tibet, where they told me that there is also a secret tradition of this in Tibetan Buddhism. It's not simply nirvana, the eternal peace, and then never explain it how, somehow, you fall into this wheel of desire, non-satisfaction. 
this very profound insight that there must be a terrible track malfunction in nirvana in the void itself. Something must go wrong there, up there already. This is why they told me, you know, I remember, you remember some 20 years ago when, when FBI was laying siege to a group of fanatics in Waco, Texas, and then killed them. You know what music they played to them to terrorize them around the camp? This were Tibetan low bass religious music. I think they were right. This is the voice of the devil. If you, <laughs> which is why I like. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let's do our final question with Matthew Flissfeder, um, my friend. Please go. Sure. Hi, Slavoj. Good oh, to see oh you. My God, we are all the time in contact. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I saw that you. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I saw that you published today a piece on Gorbachev, and I'm wondering. Um, Sorry, don't I mean, everything is read in my previous books. Journalists called me, and I we you know what I did. This very PC on which you see me now, I put a uh, uh, click to my text, find Gorbachev, and I combined uh, three, four fragments. It took me okay. But he, but here's my question. So, in the context of the, the the current war, how do you see the opposition Gorbachev Putin, especially in light of the way that Gorbachev, in particular, he was half pro Putin. Almost he tried to show understanding for Putin and so on. And wait a minute to avoid a misunderstanding. I'm not crazily just pro. Ukrainian. I know a lot about what they are doing wrong. We can talk literally for over an hour about this. But all I'm saying, this is my basic point. It's a well thought geopolitical plan behind what Russia is doing. And it's not, uh, it's not just this, all this Dugin, stupid, almost theology, nationalist is for me not just a bombastic excuse to grab a piece of land there. There is a precise sense in which the enemy is Europe, much more than United States, which is why, and this is what really scares me out of heat, there are signs in the Republican Party where they, because do you know that uh, American alt-right always hated Europe, but Europe as united Europe. Steve Bannon, test his goal is to break up uh, European Union. So what I'm saying is that what really makes me afraid is that maybe if not Trump, but some kind of Trumpian Republicans take over, I can easily, um, uh, easily, yes, Putin's Russia infiltrate the NRA. Yes, I'm easily convinced that they can make some peace New Republican United States and Putin's Russia against the uh, uh, European Union. Also, I warn you, I wrote in another text of, of something else. I know people who know people who at the end know people who claim to be close to Putin. I have my own KGB, private KGB. And they told me something very interesting, that Putin, I've written about it in my previous text, that Putin doesn't only have this religious, orthodox, Dugin, and so on, uh, guys. He has also a small think tank of leftists who provide him with line, with line of argumentation of how to present a Russian case to the third world countries. Like all this, you know, we are now decolonizing Ukraine, uh, 
what we are doing now is the final defeat of the Western colonization and so on and so on. This is, I think, the, uh, the true tragedy. And if you ask me, I'm more of a pessimist here. I think if I were still to be young to have children, I would be very skeptical about having children in this day. Do, do you think that Dugan is at all a serious thinker or philosopher no, no. that should be... But, and he's also one should not exaggerate his influence. He is not really, I know from my spies, <laughs> he is not really a secret mind. No, Putin calls him every evening, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. There are others. Some of them are even worse than <laughs> Dugin. But, you know, no, don't forget that there is a long tradition here. It began with I've written about it, but some know it. Ivan Ilyin. He was, uh, he is the original figure of Russian fascism. In the 1922 or when, when Lenin put a couple of philosophers who annoyed him on a so-called philosopher's bo uh, boat, Ilyin was on that one. And then he was in the 20s and 30s in Italy and Germany. He didn't quite like Nazism, although he was impressive. He said that German Nazism was already too much infected by journal by German Western technology, individualism, and so on. His idea was only Russia can produce an authentic fascism. And this is, uh, he's taken so seriously. Now you will say, no, do you know that Putin has his body brought back to Russia and buried officially a great ceremony. And do you know that Ilyin's books are now reprinted and given to all military conscripts, to all state bureaucrats, and so on and so on. This idea that the West was too liberal to even construct a good proper organic fascism, that only, only the Russia can do it. This is not a joke. Don't overestimate Dugin, but uh, but uh, 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 this whole ideological field that he stands for, it has to be taken uh, very seriously. And what do you make of the, the 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 fascist? Because a lot of people on the left in the U.S. they say the Ukraine is overridden with fascism themselves, so it's a contradiction. Let's be serious here. First, yeah, yeah, there are fascists. Their percentage is definitely lower than in France and in West Germany. <laughs> this truly fascist group got uh, 1% and something votes in the last election and so on. The tragedy, as I've written, I am afraid of, is that... Uh, although most of the West European fascists, they don't call themselves fascists, like the New Right, like Salvini in Italy, Le Pen in France, have more sympathies for Russia. But uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, this Visegrad group, this new European, East European post-communist right, Poland and so on, uh, they try to inscribe, as it were, Ukraine into their field against liberal, multicultural West. And this is what worries me. If Ukraine survives, what kind of Ukraine will survive? And I think 
the left, whatever remains of the left in Europe, is here making a terrible mistake by this by this non-decisive stance. Yes, all sides are guilty, maybe also Ukrainians, fascism, corruption. Of course, there is corruption, but you know, this is the platform on which Zelensky was uh, elected. Now he is desperate, not because only of Russia, because he becomes aware of how difficult it is to change the actual state apparatus. But uh, I still think, although he may sound a little bit crazy and so on, I still think that that uh, Zelensky, in spite of his Vogue portraits and so on, all that stuff, that basically he is aware also of this oligarchy danger and so on and so on. To some journalists, he even confessed that the Maidan uprising 2014 was not, it was a genuine popular movement. Friends sent me clips from there. You know, on that square, there were theatrical performances, theoretical debates. It was authentic. But in the background, it was the conflict between pro-Western and pro-Russian oligarchs. So, never, and uh, I, I've written in a text uh, against two colonizations. Don't forget another thing. Here, the West will screw it up. Do you know how the West is grabbing uh, 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 land in Ukraine? Now it's the big fight for Ukrainian farming land, which is maybe the most fertile in the world. Not only Russia wants it to blackmail us all, with, but do, do you know that uh, the West mega companies already own over one third of the best Russian, uh, sorry, Ukrainian land? They tried to, that's the dirty game of the West. Uh, uh, Ukrainians tried to stop this. Uh, ten years ago, I don't know when, they passed a law prohibiting foreigners to own the land. Under terrible pressure from the West, Zelensky had to repeal this. Because the West is here very bro brutal. They said, ah, you want our help? Fuck it. Then repeal that. Do, do, you, do you think, do you think that, that Trump would have not allowed this to happen, this whole uh, conflagration with Russia, Ukraine? I think he would just have tried to mediate it, but definitely in Putin's uh, favor. Remember the first reaction of Trump to Russian invasion. It's ingenious, it's incredible. Then he withdrew, but you know who especially was a shock for me? I'm saying what I'm saying now with full irony. My best friend, Jordan Peterson, no? It was tragic to listen to him how he begins, he, it's not even a podcast. He make really a one, made a one hour speech where he said, yeah, 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 it's sad, this brutal attack. And then he goes totally pro-Russian. He accepts the Russian designation of Western degeneration. And he said, I think Putin is sincerely religious. My God, for me, this is horrible, but for him, it's a good one. Putin is sincerely religious. They are building many churches. Of course they are. They even built now a church of the, a big cathedral dedicated to the army. It's a wonderful paradox. Orthodox church with their uh, frescoes of red army fighting and so on. So uh, uh, I definitely think that Trump 
maybe would have tried to make a compromise, but Trump would not go in this direction of confrontation. And you know what I hate when people say, aren't you horrified by these pacifist stupidities? Like, why should we help Ukraine? Because bringing in more arms will not stop the war. Okay, I say then, why not then to say the same to France in 1940? Why arms? There will be much less suffering if you simply surrender and so on and so on. You know what's the problem with Ukraine and all those countries, Finland and so on? Uh, they're really afraid. We underestimate this in the West. They are really afraid of Russia. You know, because Russia is making clear moves. It was before in Gruzia, Georgia and so on. It's clear and they are simply, it's not that Finland and Sweden, oh, we want NATO. They were simply afraid because Putin made, and you know, in one text before the last of months, I wrote about uh, uh, how this term denazification is already slowly expanding itself. Now, some third representatives are telling uh, from uh, from uh, from uh, uh, is telling that we need to denazify Kosovo and Bosnia and <laughs> you know it's uh, it's, uh, it's so you 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 have no um trust or or um, you're not convinced of the classic leftist claim of nato imperialism in this context no you, if uh, you know why let's be frank let's take world war 2 Look at the that, that idealized Roosevelt. The crisis went on through the 30s. It's only World War II with military investments, which brought United States really out of crisis. So should we then say, don't fight the Germans? It helps uh, the American military uh, establishment. I would worry much more, as I said, about that land grabbing and so on and so on. You know, this agricultural, if you call it, uh, colonization. No, no, I'm of that specifically, I'm not afraid. And this, uh, I am, of course, for peace. But, you know, that's my paradox. I wonder if you agree. The paradox is that at some point, to limit the war, you have to show will to defend yourself, you know, that by just conceding peace, the other side, we learn this from Hitler, my God. Yes, peace, uh, Austria, Czechoslovakia, blah, blah, blah. At the end, we got what we got. And I read a wonderful science fiction novel. I don't overestimate them, but I loved it, about uh, alternate history, an uh, English guy who has a series of them, about how the West and Russia decides to go to war after uh, Hitler occupied uh, Czechoslovakia. And it's a totally different picture. Uh, the war drags on, but they somehow limit Hitler. He doesn't succeed to get all of France, and it's like it doesn't develop. I, so I think that, crazy as it may sound, what is happening now is maybe the only way to prevent a more global uh, conflict. But again, what I don't get it with, with the, uh, uh, I know, I know, yeah, yeah, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, KRS, uh, keep and false equivalent. Sorry, I'm absolutely not uh, putting on the same level like Putin is Hitler or whatever. I'm just saying it's a clear aggression and don't relativize it. And it's an aggression behind which, uh, 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 sorry, behind which there is a geopolitical plan. What about Taiwan? Is that next? Well, I am tired of my own bluffing. I don't know. I don't know. Because for a long time, I thought, wait a minute, uh, Taiwan is nonetheless part of China in some sense, you know. But some friends who are leftists, not rightists, even try to convince me that it's not as ambiguous as that, that Taiwan has a long tradition of autonomy. It was never almost in the history an organic part of China or whatever. But I think that nonetheless it is a difference because Taiwan is Chinese. You know that even Mao introduced this simplified language writing, no? And Taiwan still has the old Mandarin whatever. So in some sense, Taiwan is more traditional China than 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 uh, China itself, no? So I I I I am not uh, qualified enough to pass uh, judgment on that. Yeah, I mean this re- this really reminds me of the of Mike Mike Davis, the American the Marxist. Yeah, I love him. I love his stuff. Yeah, yeah, because his 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 point about the contemporary left is interesting because he basically says we've been so disempowered from being even commentators on international affairs because we have no power. Yeah, yeah. Like we 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 have nothing to say often. And I think that's the, so yes. That's is very so, true that though. He's so very right. Because again, as I always repeat this haha, for riders of the apocalypse, hunger, pandemic, war, digital control, and so on. For me, it's an ABC evidence that Something like a new communism, socialism, not 20th century, but in the sense of more social control, limiting the market. Look, just imagine uh, now a hunger food crisis. You cannot do it at the level of sovereign states. Millions of people will be displaced. How to organize this and so on, you know. And uh, that's why I am a pessimist. In the very simple, vulgar sense, I wonder if you will agree. I am afraid that maybe we need even more of a catastrophe. (laughs) Maybe even Ukraine, we will get tired of it and it's not enough to awaken us. By us, I mean here, Western Europe and Europe. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm actually worried about, you know, I may be leftist, blah, blah, but I'm fully aware how the role of written and unwritten rules of some basic public consent for a state to function. You know, and this is why it worries me, you know what you have now in the United States? Not only breathtaking obscenities, you know, that Senator, what, how is he called? Aikin, Akin, who made the textless uh, Comparison: A woman really cannot be raped because if you penetrate her, she had to get wet. And so it's beyond my mind that something like this can be said publicly, not male chauvinist talk in a pub <laughs> afterwards. But what I want to say is also 
You remember how now, what I really am afraid, and many of my friends are, what the Republicans are now doing, trying to pass the law in different states that if the election result is in any way unclear, the local Congress can directly nominate delegates. Sorry, but this is not just the end of democracy, but the end of stable social order. All these calls, uh, uh, Biden is not a legitimate pre president and so on and so on. I mean, yeah, I yeah, it's almost the United States. It's it's almost like that uh, dystopian film on Netflix, Up in the Air. You know, it's it's gotten to a point now where that is our normal reality, but it could be worse. It could be worse than that. But that's why I agree with you, and that's one of the strategies that Putin and others bad guys are playing. You know, we screwed Ukraine. Wait a minute, it could be worse. You know, nuclear arms, would whatever. You, would you call this a kind of new nihilism? Is this a kind of new, is this a nihilistic? I don't like this term because it means so many different things. If you buy nihilism, just means at the ground of it all, it's a zero or what, then okay. Every mysticist is in this sense, or Buddhism is nihilist. I would go even further here and say, repeating the formulas of Alenka and Mladen, my nihilism is that even the zero phase, <laughs> you know, we cannot even get at that uh, zero point. But no, I don't like it. It's something much more horrible that my friend uh, Adrian Johnson wrote about. We are in a strange situation. We know what is wrong, vaguely, vaguely. Even the official media, global warming, pandemics, we need cooperation. You remember the disgusting scene, uh, now it's only a year ago, in Glasgow, conference on against global warming. We know it. We even know vaguely what has to be done, and we do nothing. This is the mystery today. It's Alenka developed this as the idea that today, Knowledge itself is a fetish in the sense that we know how things are, but we use this as an excuse not to confront things. You know, it's, it worries me. Okay. All right. Now well, I'm slowly collapsing. Don't okay. Okay. I will make the cut. I'll make the, the scansion in the Lacanian sense. And thank no, you. No, fuck this. You make the Stalinist cut. Enough comments. Stalinist cut, of course. <laughs> Stalin and Lacan are the, well, that, that was actually a debate we had recently, which was, was Kojev a Stalinist? And did Lacan read Kojev as a Stalinist? It's a very interesting debate. You know, I spoke with some people. It was a, a, a friend, friend of mine is a big student of Kojev, knows everything. And he said it's not so much that he was a Stalinist, but he thought that Stalinism he oscillated what would be the model of this post-historical pseudo-Hegelian society. His first idea was like American technocracy. Then after World War II, everybody impressed with Russia. He took very seriously Stalinism. And you know that Korzhev in the early, at least 50s, worked for what was it called European Union, its previous European market and uh, was obsessed with the idea of including Russia. But then his latest ideal was this uh, um, Japan, postmodern melancholy, irony, and so on and so on. So it's not so much that he was a stupid Stalinist thinking that there is a democracy in Russia and so on, but he, he was, that's the mistake of all these pseudo-Hegelians, you know, 
he didn't read properly Hegel. When Hegel said mm. about future, we cannot say anything. No, he really thought we are at the end. And he was looking for different uh, figurations uh, of this end. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Fukuyama incorporates Nietzsche, last man, all of that with Kojev. But it's very everybody, everybody, everybody forget. was a nice surprise for me. The last thing I heard about him two years ago is that he got it, that he got it wrong, and that at the end, two years ago, he supported Bernie Sanders. That's what I was yep, told. Yep, yep, yep. You That's see, right. we have to be open, you know? You never know. I'm not saying that when we will take power, we should not shoot Fukuyama. But he may be allowed to be a fellow traveler now. <laughs> then, when his time comes, our secret police will knock on his door. Of course, that's life. What can we do? <laughs> Thanks very much for your patience. And we can... How do you say in California, but you are not there? We can repeat this shared experience one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks right. very much. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.